But what I've done, and, and we're not going to get into this, by the way, today, but my desire is to leave this here in the chapel. I have no doubt that some 10-year-old will come in and erase it all some, at some point <laughs> sooner rather than later, and then I'll re, try to attempt to redraw it. Uh, but one thing I did want you to see, this, this red little magnet uh, is uh, where, where Israel is, and that's what this side of the board is an enlargement of that red dot. Now, many people over the millennia have have, uh, have put forward theories about why God, you know, why Israel, why that spot geographically, and none of them know. Uh, however, it is interesting when you think that, that that point right there is a bridge, a land bridge, into three major continents, uh, Africa, Europe, Asia, when you think about Paul wanting to go into Asia and the Lord sends him the dream that sends him into Macedonia and then Europe and then uh, we are here today, 2,000 years later. But uh, it is interesting to ponder that fact that, that that little piece of real estate right there is, is a very strategically located uh, area. Now what we're going to be looking at in Luke, for the most part, will entirely take place in this region. Mount Hermon up in the north, we talked about that uh, last week down to the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, the, the town of Dan is up here. I know you can't read these, these words. Beersheba is down here. So you see why when people say from Dan to Beersheba, they're talking about, it'd be like saying from Maine to Florida. Uh, uh, covers the whole breadth of, of the country. Uh, Jerusalem being uh, this this little inlay here is is today called the West Bank. It would have been Samaria uh, in Jesus's day, uh, but we'll get into all this later. Luke eight is where you need to be. <laughs> uh, that's that's Kersey. That's this is the Sea of Galilee. So you remember last week Jesus had crossed the sea with his disciples and gotten to the demoniac, <clears throat> and I. I uh, Last week, we got to the very tail end of that piece of, of the uh, scriptures here. It's, it's specifically Luke 8, verses 26 to 39, but I had to fly through the end of it. And I've, that has, has uh, bothered me the whole week, and, and I've decided that it's too important. I want to go back to it. I'm not going to go into verse 40 and beyond. We'll do that next week, Lord willing. Uh, but the notion that the demoniac brings to people who live in the 21st century is, is demon possession and all of this. Uh, the television is packed with strange demonic uh, movies, shows, uh, people talking about uh, many, many kinds of things. And uh, it's it's critically important that we understand what this life is in this world uh, and especially relative to the notion of demons, Satan, all of these things uh, which which occupy so much of the uh, Hollywood uh, influence in our lives. Uh, I'm, I'm not even going to go over them. You, you know how that works out. Every other movie it seems these days to be something about zombies or 
uh, half dead or, or demons doing this out of the other. Uh, we're, we're going to attempt to straighten all that out today. Uh, but where we were specifically last week was we, in detail, we got through verse 33. Now that, up to that point, that's basically Jesus working with this, this man who was possessed of, of several, uh, demons. It says, and this is one of, of uh, two or three episodes in the Gospels where you have so-called demon possession. Um, and Jesus handles that in, in miraculous ways, which is not uh, hard to understand or, or strange even. Uh, when Jesus there in verse 30 asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered the man. Uh, they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Uh, now a large herd of pigs were feeding there on the hillside. They begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. The demons came out of the man, entered the pigs, and the pigs ran down into the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and were drowned. <clears throat> now what follows, beginning in verse 35 and going through 39, is this. Then the people went out to see what had happened. Now remember, Jesus is in an unusual position geographically to be on the east side of the Sea of Galilee means you are no longer in Israel. You're in basically Gentile territory. That's why they're, they're got herds of pigs. Uh, the Jews would not have had herds of pigs. They didn't, you couldn't eat pigs. Uh, so this is a Gentile region over here. Now the people have not seen what everybody else has seen on the west side of the Sea of Galilee that we've been looking at for two chapters, chapter seven and eight, had all those events in Jesus's life where he's letting his disciples observe his power, raising people from the dead, forgiving their sin, eating with prostitutes, all these kinds of things. These people, all they know is that this very strange man who's, who's walked around naked uh, sleeps in cemeteries and has all they know is that Jesus has done something to this man uh, to drive uh, the demons out and they come out on verse 35 to see what had happened and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone and the man is now quote sitting at the feet of Jesus clothed and in his right mind and they were afraid now, what in the world, why would they be afraid? Uh, well, they're afraid of the unknown. They're afraid of, of uh, they've, they've encountered this man, Jesus, who they have no history with. And they are, are not going to, to see him much longer, as it turns out. Uh, verse 36, those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Verse 37, the people respond to that news. All the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes, again, as we saw last week, that's, that's a very ill-defined geography, but it's to the, to the east side there where that town of Kersey uh, is, uh, asked Jesus to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So they see this miracle happen, and their response to it is, oh my goodness, we don't understand this, so please leave. Not, of course, having a clue what significance uh, for their lives and their eternal uh, existence they are doing. 
End of verse 37. So he got into the boat and returned. And we mentioned that, alluded to that. He returned and he went back to the west side of the Sea of Galilee. So he's gone now. Uh, they have this little snippet of an opportunity. Now that's, we're, her, we're early in Luke. We're in Luke chapter 8. As you move through the Gospels, as you move really from Genesis to Revelation, you're going to see this notion of progressivism moving. And by progressivism, don't associate that any uh, with the Democratic Party. I'm not talking about that kind of progressivism. I'm talking about a, 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 an enlarging focus that Jesus is going to be dropping hints. What I mean by Genesis to Revelation is you see uh, people like Ruth, people like Rahab, uh, little snippet statements uh, that are enormous in significance. The covenant with Abraham, where God says, you're going to be a blessing to every nation on the earth. You're going to get all of these. Uh, but that's, that's got to happen over time, over the appointed time that God has, has ordained for that to happen. This is one of those little snippets. Jesus goes east. He goes into a territory that would make him unclean just by walking on the ground there. And then he's going to come back and he's going to do a lot of things where you would expect him to do it. But he's going to keep this forward focus. The disciples again are thinking, here's this Jesus, here's this Messiah. He's going to kick the Romans out, send them packing back to Italy. He's going to, he's going to help Israel. Now that's not at all what is going on here. Jesus uh, is going to tell the, the disciples, as you know, when he's uh, about to be exalted and uh, removed from the earth back to the right hand of God in great honor and privilege, He's going to say, okay, I want you guys to stay here in Jerusalem and wait because your goal is going to be to take this gospel through Judea, through Samaria. Judea's down here, Samaria's here, to the uttermost ends of the earth. This is, this is one little salvo that we're seeing with this demoniac in this particular place. Uh, now the man, verse 38, the man from whom the demons were, were cast, uh, he begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home, declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him, very similar to the woman at the well of Samaria. Uh, the people that are, that are touched, uh, people who, who become Christians, um, would be a very bad way of describing it, but, but people that the Lord has moved, that the Holy Spirit has, has changed their heart, go toward Jesus, and they cannot help but proclaim his life. Uh, others will, will have a, um, a different take, and they'll act like the, the citizens of the Gerasenes here. They'll say, uh, we, you know, we don't get away from us. We're either going to get away from you or you need to get away from us. We don't, we don't understand it. We don't want to, that's, that is as true today as it was 2000 years ago in this episode. Now, the larger issue that I, that I really want to get at through all of this episode is the tendency that so many Christians today have to hear the word demonic, Satan, devil, all of those kinds of words, uh, and, and to think, it's possible that, that some little, little event may happen that I will encounter these very bizarre things. Uh, possessions, 
and and I need an exorcist perhaps, and I need this, that, or the other. That is an entirely erroneous perspective on Scripture, an entirely erroneous perspective on what it means to be a Christian every single moment of our lives. And I want to uh, to show you a, a I mentioned a book two weeks ago by David Paulison called Power Encounters. Excellent book where he talks about uh, he talks about these these kinds of powerful encounters. He goes a little bit beyond just uh, the demonic, uh, but then he wrote a second one, a little bitty thing. You see how little this is? You can literally read it in one sitting. It's called Safe and Sound, Standing Firm in Spiritual Battles. Uh, now, this. <clears throat> Not just any old whiteboard. <laughs> um, what I want to look at uh, is something is, is spiritual warfare. Now, the, the, the beginning point, of course, would be Luke eight thirty four thirty nine of the episode. With the demoniac, I made a handout because I think this is so important. I don't want you to forget what I have spoken. So if anybody, if you can just, one sheet, if you want one, if you don't want one, that's fine. But uh, it's front and back, one sheet. And I've gotten uh, this material uh, from Paulison's book. You still should get the book. Don't trust me to, uh, to tell you everything important on one sheet of paper. Uh, but as those things are going around, <clears throat> let me tell you about Dave Pallison. Dave, Dave ended his life as the executive director of CCEF, Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. To me, still today, uh, without, without peer or competition, really, as um, as a counseling arm based solely on Scripture. Uh, Dave lived not too far away from us. Uh, Bobby and I raised our sons, our family, on the on, literally on the grounds of Westminster Seminary, uh, living in the gatehouse there, which is uh, uh, literally across the street from CCEF. CCEF was begun by a man named Jay Adams. Uh, some of you may be familiar with some of Jay's uh, many books. Uh, Dave became the head of that, was a good friend. Our some of one of our sons dated one of his daughters. I mean, we were it was uh, we uh, it was a, a sheer delight and a privilege to know Dave Pallison. This was one of the most godly human beings I've ever known in my life. Now, Dave. Uh, He's born in Hawaii, grows up in Hawaii because his father was a Marine in the Pacific in World War II. Dave comes, uh, unbeliever, very, very intelligent man. He comes for his collegiate years to Harvard where he's doing what all of us were doing in college in the 60s, protesting Vietnam, all this kind of stuff. I was not, I was in ROTC and hiding from protesters who wanted to bash my skull in. Uh, but uh, at any rate, Dave, two events happen within a year's span when he's 25 years old. His grandfather dies. He loved his grandfather. His grandfather was a very smart man. 
his grandfather, as he is going through his last month or so on this earth, he and Dave are talking, and his grandfather is, is wringing his hands, uh, not able really well to face death, and has no answer to what is happening to him. Uh, he's not a believer. Dave takes, uh, shortly thereafter, a part of his uh, Harvard education. He's, he's in a uh, town in Africa, riding in a car. Dave is actually a passenger in the back seat. A drunkard wanders in front of the car, and just before the car hits the man and kills him on the spot, Dave and the man lock eyes. Those two events keep percolating in Dave's mind, and, and uh, he has a very, very good friend, and you can go on, on the website, and you should go on the website and watch the interview um, with, uh, goodness, I, I can't remember this man's name, but um, uh, Bob... Um, Anyway, this uh, this um, this man was actually a a sweet mate of Dave's at Harvard, Bob Kramer. Uh, Kramer also went to Harvard as an unbeliever, but for his time in another place, he happened to go to Switzerland and run into Francis Schaeffer at Labrie. So he became a Christian, very very strong Christian. Uh, Bob Kramer is going to come back up in the story in a minute. Uh, Bob keeps ministering to Dave Pallison at Harvard. They're both two of the most brilliant people you will ever know, and, and Dave is, is keep, he keeps prodding and probing and, and fascinating by the answers that, that Kramer is, is able to give him. Uh, and then these two deaths happen. Uh, Dave starts praying, and it was Ezekiel 36, the, the heart of stone to a heart of flesh chapter that the Lord used in this particular way. Uh, he, he becomes a believer, and all of that intelligence and, and vigor and fascination with the universe that we all inhabit was transformed into wonderful, uh, wonderful things until Dave became uh, executive director. Then... As he's writing this book, he's got pancreatic cancer. This book is, Dave finishes this book about three weeks before he dies. That's why I now prefer this one over Power Encounters. Power Encounters, he wrote about 10 years before this. He wasn't thinking about death. The final chapter in this one has to do with facing death. Uh, whether you wander out in the road and it happens like that, or whether you're like his grandfather, or whether you're like Dave Pallison, with plenty of time where you've got to plan what you're going to do with your children, your grandchildren. You want to reach out to the ones that are not yet saved, uh, all of these kinds of things. But the book is what the handout speaks to. Uh, I will obviously can't, can't go through all of this <clears throat> up here. And Nate and I tried to figure out how we could get this thing down here. I realize I'm standing right in front of it and you can't see it. But what's up here is in your handout. Uh, what's up here begins the handout with that four ways to understand stand spiritual warfare. And here is, these four are critical to understand. It's a metaphor, spiritual warfare. 
for standing on the Lord's side in the epic struggle between the Lord and his enemies. Now, if you think about Job, here's a, here's a man who, who, you know the story. God has the conversation with Satan. God says, all right, I will let you go mess with this man, but only this far. And that keeps going back and forth to the point where Job loses everything he has, including all of his children, yet still stands there as his friends come in and say, boy, why don't you curse God? I mean, look at, look at what he's done to you. And he said, I don't get it, but God is God and I worship him. Uh, that's what is meant by standing on the Lord's side in the epic struggle between the Lord and his enemies. Now that normally comes to us under the three categories of world flesh and devil. And I'm adding death to that because death uh, is the one thing uh, Dave, Dave's pastor, another wonderful, wonderful man, Jack Miller, if you may have read some of his book, Come Back Barbara, um, about his, his daughter. Uh, anyway, uh, Miller had a saying once, uh, wish I could remember it. it it's something like, uh, the physicians in my church can sometimes save somebody for a period of time. I sometimes have people that live forever. Uh, ultimately, all the doctor's people die, but mine don't. And that's because he was ministering the gospel to them. So all of these battles are moral, spiritual battles to be waged by the Christian in faith. In other words, don't think of demons, demon possession, and bizarre movies like uh, Carrie and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, that is not spiritual warfare. Point number two, it is a moral struggle. What do I mean by that? It centers around these questions, who we are, what we believe, and how we live. That is a struggle that goes on for every one of you and for me every minute of every day that we will live on this earth. We are engaged in spiritual warfare constantly. Uh, all these issues, especially the, our sufferings, provide occasions to either stand in the light, or stumble into the darkness. That's exactly what we see at the end of this passage in Luke 8. The demoniac wants nothing but the light. He won't, he won't leave. He wants, he wants to go wherever Jesus goes. And Jesus says, that's great. What I need you to do is go back to the town and you just be a witness for me. Uh, the the garrison say, oh, we, don't, we don't want any of this. They're going back to the darkness. That, that point, counterpoint, is encountered by every one of us all the time. And that is the essence of spiritual warfare, not uh, this sort of nebulous, uh, frightening uh, boogeyman kind of thing. It's going on all the time. Uh, James 3, I'm not going to take, uh, take the time at this point to read that. James 3, verse 13 through chapter 4, verse 12, highlights the struggle when James is, is talking about in that passage. Uh, if you read it and, and look at the, at what James is saying here, the struggle between the folks who want darkness, the human heart is always crying out, I am and I want. Give me what I want. Uh, and we see this so many times in scripture from people. We also see it and know it, unfortunately, in our own hearts and lives. I'll speak only for myself. The, the, the struggle between what I know I should be doing versus what I really want to do. Uh, it's, it's a classic all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, 
noting that repentance before God will make the devil flee. That's one of the important uh, aspects that comes out of that James 3 passage. Uh, what do I have to fight against this, this, this foe who is real? Uh, there, we're not going to shortchange uh, that. We're going to get down under the fourth point there. I'm not saying that there are no demons, that there is no Satan, that there is no devil. There certainly is and are. Uh, and there is a fight. But repentance before God to come back to what I know is, is, uh, is instructed of me as a believer, that will make the devil flee. The devil does not have command over you. Only so far as God will allow him to do that, which God will use in your life to deepen and strengthen your faith, either by failing and realizing when you're down there eating with the pigs that you need to straighten up and fly right. It's the prodigal son all over again. The prodigal son comes in and says, okay, give it to me now because I've got all this living I'm going to do. Don't tell me about God. I'll do that later. He goes out and he tries that, and that didn't work so well, and he repents and comes back, and all is well. Um, point number three, spiritual warfare, therefore, is a synonym for the struggles of the Christian life, which is to say all of life is one spiritual war. That is what is meant by that phrase. We are all in it. The problem with making demons and demon possessions, those weird, rare events that we hopefully will never encounter, is we then think, well, I'm fine. Unless that happens to me, then I'm, I'm just going traipsing you know, through life and everything's fine and I'm not going to have any big problem. I've got temptations and maybe I fall here or there, but that's okay. Satan's not involved in any of that. That is the problem with making demonic possession and demons and all of these things uh, these very, very bizarre Hollywood uh, movie sets that I may or may not ever encounter. The truth of the matter is we are encountering this struggle from the minute we cross the street to become Christians. I, I use that uh, illustration because I remember so well going up to Philadelphia. Here I am, a Georgia boy, born and raised, though University of Florida graduate. Uh, <clears throat> it's a hard, shameful thing to say these days, but... Uh, by the way, Ben Sass is inaugurated as the new Florida president tomorrow, uh, the senator from Nebraska. I hope he knows what he's in for. Uh, but <clears throat> uh, I go up to Philadelphia, and I'm used to Southerners. I am a Southerner. I grew up in, in the South. And Southerners are like amoebas. Uh, we are so intent on being unctuous and nice uh, and hospitable and all of these kinds of things that you push on a southern, they just kind of keep schmoozing around. <laughs> you know, I'm looking for a backbone. I'm looking for something that's going to stand there rigidly and say, this is what I believe, and I'm willing to enter an argument with you. That's hard to do in the South. I go up to Philadelphia, and I've been there much uh, too many days when it's very, very obvious that if I walk down the street carrying a sign, I'm a Christian, 800 people are going to see me from the other side of the street, cross the street, imperiling their life to do so in order to get in my face and say, you're an idiot. You're an idiot to be a Christian. Let's talk about it. That is frankly a very refreshing encounter. Uh, but nonetheless, this is, this is what's going on here. There is a spiritual warfare in every minute of every uh, bit of life that we're going to carry. 
Now, point four, spiritual warfare is, again, a battle for lordship. Whose image am I going to be made in? You know what Genesis 1, 26 to 28, very, very important passage. Uh, God makes humans in his image. Those humans are either going to suppress the truth, Romans 1, 18, about what they know of God, or God in Ezekiel 36 is going to get rid of my heart of stone, give me a heart of flesh where I finally have eyes to see, the scales fall off, and I embrace in humble gratitude a Savior who died for my sins. Uh, so it's a battle for lordship. Am I going to move toward the light or am I going to move toward the darkness? That's not just a decision that you make once in life. It's a decision that will confront you and confront me in every single moment of everything that we encounter. That's why it does, uh, interestingly, the spiritual warfare phrase, while it does not appear in Scripture, is probably because Scripture views it as such obviously a part of everything it's talking about that it has no need to talk about, quote, spiritual warfare. Everything Scripture talks about is spiritual warfare. Uh, John, that John 8 passage and 1 John 5 passage, is, those are passages that talk about Satan. I am not short-pedaling Satan. If anything, I'm, I'm going to give him more credit than he's due. Because the, the, the two mistakes that Christians have in dealing with the occult and Satan and demon and all that is we either put Satan up way, way too high and we think he has power over us, which he does not. He is a created being. He is not God. Or we get so afraid, perhaps, that we just refuse to even acknowledge that there could be such a thing. And we go blundering in where angels would fear a tread. Uh, so those two passages will get you there. First John 5.19 uh, says this, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I think about that in one little verse. We know that we're of God, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, of Satan he's talking about there. Uh, but we, But he, Satan, will flee in the face of the Lord and the heart of a repentant, Faithful, though sinful Christian. That's the important thing. My faith needs, in other words, to be built. That's why we get here to how to envision spiritual warfare. Well, what uh, Paulison does in this book, and I think it's, I think it's brilliant. I think it's, it's biblically sound. He goes to Ephesians chapter six, verses 10 to 20. And he uses that. Now that is a famous passage about the armor of God. Uh, here's what, uh, here's the way Allison takes that. In Ephesians 6, 10 to 20, highlights four key truths about how to envision spiritual warfare with Ephesians 6, verse 10 being the overarching theme, not only of that passage, but uh, he, he thinks, and I agree with him, of the entire book of Ephesians. I would go farther and call it the entire scripture. 6, 10 says this, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. A very concise statement that, uh, that is the essence of, of spiritual warfare. Uh, so, first of all, it's not a, a passage that is unique in introducing any new topic. It's summarizing. That's why the first word of Ephesians 6.10 is the word finally. Paul has moved through all of his, his uh, teachings in Ephesians, gets to the end of it, and says, finally, to cap it all off, to summarize the whole thing, 
Be strong in the Lord. Here he goes. Uh, number two, spiritual warfare is done together as the body of Christ. That's why the church is so important. If we wander through this life as an individual Christian and don't be associated, don't get associated with a church, a body of, of like-minded, like-thinking believers, we make it much, much harder on ourselves. We need one another. Because I know you're struggling, and you know I'm struggling, and there are times when I can't see it, when it's right in front of my face and I can't see it, and I need you to lovingly, hopefully, <coughs> point it out to me. I need to do the same, and we then need to pray together to get through it in a God-honoring way. Uh, so it's, it's something that's done together, the body of Christ. That, that's why it's the church that the gates of hell, i.e. Satan, will not prevail against. It can prevail against anything and everything else, but it will not prevail against the church. Finally, number or the third one, the whole armor of God is perhaps better understood. There's no question. Uh, Paulus is trying to be careful here. It is not, perhaps, it is better understood as complete weaponry. Uh, it's, it's a Greek word that doesn't occur very often, and it has a fascinating uh, semantic history, if you get into those kinds of things. But what it's talking about is, is the fully armed, complete weaponry of a person ready for combat. We tend to read Ephesians 6, 10 to 20, we, we envision maybe this little Roman soldier ready to hunker down and, and take on all the, the darts of the evil one. That's true as far as it goes, but it's the wrong perspective on the passage. This is an offense. You, we're all familiar in the sports world that, that the best defense is a good offense. Well, that's true uh, in, in spades in the uh, Christian environment. So this passage is talking, uh, it, will it have some defensive aspect? Yes, it will, but preeminently it's offensive, not defensive. Uh, that's what point four gets to. It's mounting an offense, not merely uh, playing defense. If you read that passage of 2 Corinthians 6, 7, it's stunning how Paul describes what he calls, quote, his weapons of righteousness. He's not talking about, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to sit here and hunker down. Uh, he's talking about uh, the weapons that he has of righteousness from God. Um, when he gets to Ephesians 6, 10 to 20, I've given you the, the normal uh, seven aspects of that passage, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace. This is all in the back of your handout. The shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. I just didn't underline and bold that. that there's no significance to the fact that I blew it there. Uh, and then finally, praying at all times. Now, praying... Uh, we sometimes perhaps don't understand what a, what a weaponology there is in prayer. There's a man named William Gurnall, or Gurnall, I don't, never have known how to pronounce that. He was a Puritan. Uh, this is a guy born about 1616. Uh, he's, he's really famous for one book called The Whole Armor of God. It's a book on Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. It is 1250 pages long. It is glorious. It is easily read. It's not quickly read, but it is easily read and full of things that will encourage you as a believer. 300 plus pages of that are devoted to prayer. In other words, prayer does not follow at the end of this passage as just, oh, by the way, 
uh, why don't you get together and pray every now and then? Uh, prayer is one of the weapons. I've also given you uh, the most likely origins of all of those pieces. Most of them Paul was getting from Isaiah. If you read those passages, one of them from the book of Psalms, uh, you'll see that. Uh, and then finally, Pallison, because he was a counselor and head of the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation, he goes into combat in the spiritual wars. He says that in virtually any, if you take every single person, every Christian, every believer who comes in for counseling, he thinks you can lump virtually all of them together in the three categories of problems with anger, problems with fear, problems with escapism. And I've given you a couple of categories of each of those. People who are bitter, people who grumble all the time, people who complain all the time, uh, angry people, people fear, paranoia, everything, to panic attacks, to anxiety and worry. Escapism would be all of the addictions that we have this uh, in our lives this time. Even animistic cultures. There's a fascinating two or three pages in here. Pallison spent a lot of time in Uganda, in Africa. Now, if you think about the continent of Africa, we tend to think of the dark continent. There's a whole lot of weird things going on. Witchcraft, witch doctors, all of these kinds of things. And by the way, if you pander to Satan, uh, he'll, he'll fulfill your panderings, and you'll meet more of them than you would like. But the assumption we have is that, well, obviously Christianity... I mean, I don't know what we're going to do with this with this witch doctor over here, with these weird, weird things going on. Pallison has a very good friend who went into as a missionary to Africa, who encountered all of this and tried to meet it in kind, and it failed utterly. Then he simply went back to Scripture, and he said, you need to believe in Jesus Christ, repent of your sins, and that turned the animistic cultures around just like it turns any other culture around. In other words, this book is the secret, the way to live, come to the light and the power that is in Jesus Christ, the power of God exhibited and and perhaps handled in a way through the Holy Spirit, through the power of the Holy Spirit, will solve any spiritual problem, whether in deepest, darkest Africa or in brightest day, yet utterly sinful America. Uh, and finally, of course, death itself. To me, the most powerful, it, it, because I knew Dave when he was going through this, uh, when he was dying, uh, it is just so powerful how he talks about, yes, uh, he grieves at the thought of leaving his family. Yes, he is fearful. Yes, uh, there is an unknown component. But in those moments of grief or fear or whatever, he goes back to his Savior and he is met there by that Savior and overcomes those aspects, even knowing that he's shortly going to die. He died on January the, or June the 7th of 2019. This book came out about uh, April of that year. A very, very powerful uh, passage. So... <clears throat> I'm sorry to throw the uh, kitchen sink uh, at you, but uh, I hope that that um, we'll we'll encounter demons again in Luke and in other passages of Scripture. But when you do, don't think that they are inordinate and very, very unique and unusual events. You are dealing with spiritual warfare uh, from the moment you get up to the moment you you uh, end in sleep. 
Let me close by reading just a couple of passages uh, for you. I want to begin in, in the 49th Psalm. Uh, beautiful, beautiful passage. This, this um, well, 49, I want to read just two verses, 14 and 15. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth. I'm reading in uh, Psalm 51. It's getting two pages. I'm sorry. Psalm 49, 14 and 15. Like sheep. Now here is, here is uh, the psalmist is talking about people who are not following Jesus. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol, for hell. Death shall be their shepherd rather than Jesus Christ being the shepherd of the sheep. Death is their shepherd. And the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God, verse 15, you always want to perk your ears up when you hear that phrase, but God. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol for he will receive me. I want to go then to Psalm 56. Psalm 56 is when David is fleeing Saul. And of all places, he goes to Gath. Gath was the hometown of Goliath. You can imagine how David would be received in Gath. Psalm 56, uh, verses 8 to 11. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God, I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? And I'm going to close with a couple of verses from Hebrews and 2 Corinthians. Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Conclude with this, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, uh, we, we have struggles. Uh, we are sinful people. We fall to these struggles more often than we'd like to. Uh, but Father, ultimately, even though every moment of our lives is a battle, a battle of spiritual warfare, uh, we have the victory because your son has come and taken our sins upon himself, nailed them forever to that tree, past sins, present sins, any sins we will 
commit going forward and given us the promise, the absolute guarantee of eternal life. Father, uh, we do thank you that in our hearts we have been given this light of the knowledge of the glory of God found in the face of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.